Hello, and welcome to this edition of Life's Tough, You Can Be Tougher. I'm Dustin Plantle, your host. This is a show about life and purpose. It's about the stories we all have. Everyone, when you think about it, has a story. Some stories may sound more riveting than others. That's to be expected. Not every story, after all, is the basis for a blockbuster movie or a PBS series. Yet when you think about your own story, the most important thing to consider is what you will do with it. Or, to put it another way, what will your legacy be? We're looking forward to another terrific show today with today's featured guest, Richard Weiss, co-host of the public television series Weekends with Yankee. This series, now in its third season, provides a national audience with an insider's look at the landscapes, attractions, and hidden gems of the six-state New England region. Before we begin, I want to welcome a returning sponsor, the POI Institute. The POI Institute is a private, luxurious, holistic detox center located in gorgeous Cabo San Lucas on Mexico's Baja California Peninsula. POI offers safe, medically-focused Ibogaine detox treatments for individuals suffering from a variety of addictions. Call the POI Institute at 833-POI-CABO. That's 833-POI-CABO. Or check out their website, POIIbogaine.com. That's P-O-I-I-B-O-G-A-I-N-E.com. Be sure to tell them that Life's Tough sent you. Now let's introduce Richard. Richard Weiss is co-host of the public television series Weekends with Yankee, produced by two prominent New England media outlets, WGBH-TV and Yankee Magazine. The series, now in its third season, provides a national audience with an insider's look at the landscapes, attractions, and hidden gems of the six-state New England region. Richard is also host of the Emmy Award-winning Born to Explore television series and president of the Explorers Club, a prestigious society founded in 1904 that promotes the scientific exploration of land, sea, air, and space. When Richard was 11, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with his father. Since then, he has traveled to all seven continents and scaled Mount Kilimanjaro 15 more times. He has also tagged jaguars in the Yucatan jungles, led expeditions to the Northern Territory of Australia, went cross-country skiing to the North Pole, been on two expeditions to the Antarctica, and participated in the largest medical expedition ever on Mount Everest. Richard is the author of Born to Explore, How to Be a Backyard Adventurer. In his introduction to the book, he wrote, I hope Born to Explore inspires both the nature enthusiast and the nature impaired and provides information on the tools needed to discover and love the outdoors. And in 2002, Richard, then 43, was the youngest person to be elected president of the Explorers Club. He was elected to another four-year term as the club's president in 2018. Let's bring him on now, Richard Weiss. Welcome to the show, Richard. Yeah, hey, Dustin. How are you? Hey, good to have you. Well, you're a guy who's been traveling literally around the world, so we are very honored that you'll take the time to come back from, uh, I don't know if you're in Antarctica right now, or, uh, but for coming on our show. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Actually, I'm getting ready to go coach Little League right now. So oh, so you've little, tamed little, it down. A little different adventure. You've tamed the beast, uh, huh? Yeah, you know, that's more group dynamics than perhaps being on an expedition to uh, Antarctica or uh, to Everest. Well, what's scarier, a Little League game, the parents, or uh, Mount Everest? You know, I, th- I think to me is that how um, 
alien the outdoor world is to so many people. Like, you know, every time a kid gets a scratch or dirt or they're afraid of ticks or they're afraid mm -hmm. of insects. And I just see people being so fearful of uh, the outdoors or, you know, maybe that they see a coyote or a bear and they're like freaking out. So to me, that's that's scarier in, in, a, in a larger sense that people are so alien from the outdoors. Yeah, well, in your journeys around the world, have you ever been to the point where you actually were afraid that maybe you wouldn't come out of this or that you wouldn't be able to find your way out? You know, um, yeah, yes, I have. I, I, I don't think I, I've always prided myself on being a pretty safe uh, explorer. And I'll give you an example. If, for example, I'm going to be handling dangerous animals for filming, like, say, uh, crocodiles in Australia, which are dangerous animals, I'll go onto YouTube and I'll look at accidents that happen. Not that I have a perverse pleasure of seeing somebody's arm chopped off, but I really want to <laughs> yeah, learn. Are they allowed on YouTube? Other... I mean, I can barely post they, stuff on Instagram without them flagging it. Oh, yo, no, there's definitely some pretty graphic animal accidents on uh, there. But, you know, my father was an airline pilot. And so when I was um, 16, before I was even getting my driver's license, he was teaching me to fly. And he would take me into maneuvers where I do a, a full power stall, where it means you sort of uh, put the nose of the airplane, you know, far up and it starts falling out of the sky because you can't power it. And this was and for fun? Would, like this this was well, like a, like a know, normal day in, in your home? No, but it was training. So my father <laughs> was in control of the situation. That's incredible. And and so he always put himself in this bubble of calm. And, and I remember once uh, back in about, I don't know, 2003 or four, I was in a four-day canoe race in Belize. And the canoe I was in got sucked under what they call a strainer. Hmm. And it was this large log with a lot of branches. And I remember gripping that log and just being sort of like sucked under there with a canoe on top of us and just tremendously rushing water. So the first thing um, I thought to myself is, OK, you've got 60 seconds. Uh, find the light, you know, uh, keep calm. And so I had an internal clock going 40 seconds, 45 seconds. And, you know, I you know, popped up after, I don't know, 45, 50 seconds. Uh, my uh, comrades were there. But I went through a lot of self-analysis afterwards saying, you know, how could I have been so stupid to let myself get into that um, predicament? And part of it was ego. Um, at the time, I wasn't an experienced uh, kayaker or, or, or canoe person. And I thought, oh, well, I'm the president of the Explorers Club. I can do this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, and how do so, you how do you keep up when there's so many people there that have done things that are, that in my world, are quite scary? Well, it, it, you know, it, it, again, scary is, um, I, you know, I, I grew up ice climbing on in uh, the White Mountains. And the first time I saw somebody ice climbing who was a few hundred feet above uh, the ground on a frozen waterfall, I thought, oh, my God, this person's going to get killed. And then you learn how to do it and, uh, you, you know, you know your uh, sort of boundaries. So to be honest, I'm more nervous uh, being on I-95 between Connecticut where I live. Yeah, in me City. too. Mine's 495. So I, I understand that. Am I going to get hit? Somebody to run into yeah, me? You, yeah, I mean, people are, you know, putting on their makeup, they're drinking coffee, they're texting. And I'm thinking that to me, I have less control over the outcome. That's but a fascinating perspective. Well, the other thing is, like, if I see dark clouds on the horizon in a sailboat, I'm not going to say, okay, what are my survival skills? I'm going to say, oh, wow, I'm just going to head in and avoid it. Yeah. So I, I think 
really successful explorers see things unfolding well before uh, that pen, that penultimate moment where a disaster happens. Yeah. Now, now, are you taking less risks today? Do you find that the risks you take weren't the same? I and mean, how do you compare what you did when you were 11 to you know, when you were 14? And it sounds like you've done things you we probably don't even know about in, in terms of where you've been and, and the things you've you've been through and the things that the well, other people just, are with you. Yeah, just give you an idea of the maturation of uh, a male mind. Uh, when I was eight or nine, I saw the movie Mary Poppins, and my one of my older sisters dared me to jump off the roof with an umbrella. How <laughs> did it work out for you? Yeah, it didn't work out so well. The umbrella goes upside down. Now, if I were to do it now, my you know my knees would be shattered and crushed. <laughs> you wouldn't survive it. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I really wouldn't survive <laughs> it. And and so um, you know, so testosterone is one of those things that where people push through um, their instincts. So everybody, even when you meet somebody, you always have that first impression. And so uh, often we override our gut reaction. And I know that when I'm in a situation where my hands start getting a little sweaty, that's my internal alarm. So, um, you know, when I was in my 20s, obviously a lot fitter, even in my 30s, and you feel a little bit bulletproof, mm -hmm. you know, now that I'm older... Yeah, I, I just don't feel I, I need to prove anything anymore. So I'm more uh, sort of interested in, in cultural experiences and, uh, uh, you know, observing the world in, in a less macho way. Yeah. So what of all the things you've done and what haven't you done? You'd say, man, this has been on the list. A lot of things I haven't like, done. Like what would you be your if if you could take away the risk aspect, what would you do? You know, I, I, I've never dove with um, a whale shark, and I don't think that's, you know, super risky. Um, I've done a lot of stuff on volcanoes, which are kind of interesting. Yeah, now what's I'd that? Like so to, talk, let's talk through about that. So you're next, okay. to a, you're next to a volcano. Like, What is that moment like? Different volcanoes have different reactions, and that's all knowing your area. You know, um, if you're in a volcano that has, say, a high silicate content like uh, Mount um, uh, like Mount St. Helens, it's a more of explosive nature. So I wouldn't be so cavalier about looking over its crater rim while it's erupting. Yeah. Whereas, uh, something like, uh, Kilauea, or there's this wonderful volcano in Tanzania called Oldonia Lengai, which means mountain of God. It's the most sacred, sacred, uh, Maasai, uh, place. And it has this sort of oozing, um, lava that flows out of it then when it interacts with air it turns white so it looks like a glacier wow so i've been up there and you'll walk right up to the flow um but you know you always have to have a healthy respect i think uh many lessons can be learned from others who again thought they had it all figured out um you know just have to be respectful of, of the situation yeah now i've never been to that part of the world but i've heard the messiah are, are very kind people um what was your reactions or what were your um, meeting them, hanging out with them. And I imagine many of them kind of walked you through or got you there. Uh, what was your experience you know, with the, the Messiah? More, actually, a more recent um, experience would, would be the Hadzabi. And the Hadzabi is a uh, the last Stone Age tribe left in uh, East Africa. And so they this is a culture that goes back 10,000 years, and they're still hunter-gatherers. What history? So, yeah, so I went on a, a hunt. I'm not a hunter, but... Uh, so I tracked animals with them by bow and, um, you know, after they shot something, they had a fire within like seconds 
and then cooked it over that fires. And I, I mean, this them. really is the stone age. Like you were hang how do you find, like, how'd you find them? Well, you know, again, I have conversations with uh, friends from the Explorers Club. I read things, but, uh, you know, I, th I think there there is such a, uh, a craving for these authentic cultural experiences. And so to say, yeah, I went uh, hunting with the Hadzabi in Tanzania was pretty cool. That That is quite the experience. And when you were 11, where most people go with to baseball games with their dad, you went to climb Mount Kimajero. Was this the, well, the first trip or how'd you, like, yeah, that, that, how does this well, come about? What was my father thinking? That's yeah. Like that's a good question. Like I have an eight year old, I go in three years, I don't know if I want to bring my son to, to go climb Mount yeah. Kamajero. So you I, must've been pretty prepared and pretty mature. Uh, no, not really. No, uh, so I think my, <laughs> winging it. So, so I think to some degree, my father and I were because, um, at that time, uh, you, you would go to Abercrombie and, uh, Fitch and they were an, sort of one of these outfitter companies and you'd get leather boots and all this other stuff. We had the wrong clothing. We had like cotton shirts and we weren't <laughs> dressed properly. Yeah. And, you know, you're throwing up all over the place. But I guess I was pretty motivated. Um, I, I, I Yeah, I was pretty tough, I guess. I, I, I you know, my uh, father and my, my mother, um, who I'm still very close with, uh you know, I, I guess I, there wasn't a lot of whining in, in my house. So you sort of did things. And, <laughs> you were expected um, to do it. Yeah. And, and so even I have an 11 year old and two nines and I look at my 11 year old, it's just no way I would take her on Kilimanjaro. I mean, it would end in the first hour of, of the hike. Yeah. My, my son, he'd asked to bring the iPad. Can I bring that? No, you can't bring your iPad. You're, you're not allowed. Um, yeah. So, you know, I think, um, gosh, it, I, I just found when I was young, that because it was boring to be inside and I grew up in an area where there was a lot of land on the water and you could just sort of wander around and make fires, cook things, go clam and go oystering, die for lobsters. I just thought, you know, all, all of this stuff was so normal to me. And so as an 11 year old, I didn't think there was anything strange going to uh, Tanzania to climb Kilimanjaro. I mean, this is bragging rights when you come back to school. I mean, the other students must go. I, I, I don't think they even knew where it was. I mean, <laughs> they didn't know where, where it was. No, I guess that's true. Most people, most adults don't know where it is. Where is it, by the way? I'm with you. I, I, my father uh, was an airline pilot with Pan Am, and so I had the opportunity to travel free uh, as a child. And so it was not unusual for my dad to say, hey, you feel like coming over to uh, West Africa, to Senegal or Liberia for me? You know, on a Thursday night, we'd come back on Sunday. What a so, store. I mean, look at the magic that he created for you, that this would forever inspire you. Now, your dad's story, what made him become a pilot? What well, you know, my father, a lot of people don't realize, was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. You had Charles Lindbergh and then my father to the Pacific. And uh, at the time, <laughs> he was working for Pan Am. And That's incredible. He didn't want to get fired, so he did it under an assumed name, and uh, he just did it. You know, he, he did it because uh, someone was paying him to bring an airplane from uh, Texas to uh, a ranch in Australia. And so he got paid a few thousand dollars and, uh, you know, he did it. I mean, the background you come from, this is you are by far one of the most fascinating people we've ever had. Uh, and we've had some pretty yeah, I think, amazing I think people. You should, you should reach higher. That uh, well, we're, we're going to reach a little bit higher. I think we're going to have to go to space next. Um What's it like being around the people at the Explorers Club? I mean, trading stories where everybody can always level up and one-up you. 
Uh, there must be some amazing people you've met in your journey. Who are some of those people? Unbelievable. You know, it's unbelievable. And every time I see somebody, the Explorers Club is this mansion on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I always uh, say that it's sort of like Hogwarts for adults because you go in there and there's like secret doors and there's, you know, leather chairs and uh, just every, even in my boardroom for the board of directors, we have Theodore Roosevelt's table that he used to plan the Panama Canal. I have, um, you know, uh, the Prince of Portugal, Henry the Navigator's uh, t table from 13 something or other. I have uh, moon memorabilia. I mean, just Sir Edmund Hillary has been in there, Jane Goodall. And so um, it's interesting because you become so accustomed to these crazy, incredible, magical stories that you don't even realize what you're saying just m must sound like either, you know, total BS to people or that uh, that you're in a very privileged position. Now, the Explorers Club, I happened to I went there. Uh, back in April, on one of the top floors, there was this. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah the, there, there were some yeah, spears. Sure. I, yep. I didn't get to get the history, so I was there with uh, one of our past guests, uh, Bobby Burke, actor Bobby Burke, as well as uh, Rudy Reyes. Uh, can you tell us anything about those spears? I, I think I know the one. So the, the top floor of the Explorers Club um, was uh, Carl Akeley, who created the American Museum of Natural History. A lot of the mounts are there. So, like, for example, the lion that you see, mm -hmm. uh, Lionhead, Theodore Roosevelt brought back, or there's stuff from Charles Lindbergh, or um, you have, uh, like, a mammoth tusk hanging there. Yeah, that and was amazing, that, by the way, to see yeah, that. Yeah, so I think you, you those spears are from Papua New Guinea, but, uh, you know, every, every floor has got stuff. I, I'd have to actually be looking the at place it. has, and I know that you know it, but it, the people that, that can't, I haven't been there yet, the, the energy... The moment you walk in, there's something magical about the place. You you feel it. You get hit by it. You walk in and you look around and you know that if this room could only talk and these walls and everything that you see along the way in the history to get us here, what's it like now for you to walk in being the president of the club? Well, being the president, you know, the, the, the I mean, no job is without its difficulties and explorers uh, are all alpha individuals and it's like herding cats. That's like being the head so, of an HOA. Yeah. It's it, from that sense. It's tough, but, um, the privilege I've had of being explorers, it just gives me access to just incredible people. Like yesterday I had, uh, Sylvia Earl, who is considered the foremost oceanographer there. Um, I know that, uh, you know, we have heads of state that walk through there, I've, I've met with Jane Goodall there and uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and Neil Armstrong uh, about, uh, I guess, about two weeks ago. Neil Armstrong's son came there to uh, hand over a flag that his father had brought to the moon and wanted it in our Apollo room. So it, it's just on a on an everyday basis, it, you know, you have. You never really know. Like, it must be so when I was walking out, there was a lady that had a parrot on her shoulder. Um, I didn't know that you could bring live animals into the kingdom. Is that, is that, is that an <laughs> I, I everyday? You can. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the parrot, but we have one woman, um, Jennifer Arnold, who's a good friend. She, her passion is diving for megalodon teeth. And if you don't know what a megalodon I, is, I it, do. Is, is I, I take, I take my son to the Calvert cliffs, uh, near okay, the Chesapeake Bay. We, uh, we, yeah. we look for shark teeth. Correct. Yeah. And so the megalodon were these big things. So she wears these, she, her collection must be a thousand of them. Wow. Or, uh, I just had this uh, guy who just joined from Alaska 
who has he was a gold panner owns a lot of a gold miner owns a lot of property named John Reeves and he just by accident discovered thousands of um uh skeletons from the Pleistocene era which is the mammoth uh saber-toothed tiger era and so here you have this citizen science who's making just huge contributions by just the sheer volume of uh of stuff he found and I have another friend, Ken Lacavera, who discovered Dreadnoughtus, the largest dinosaur ever. And um, I have uh, someone named Joe Rohde who designed Dis- all the Disney parks, and he's you know helping me place memorabilia in, in the club. Uh, I have Richard Garriott, who is uh, one of the first citizens to pay to go into space, second, first second-generation astronaut in there. So – it's just incredible the history the makers. knowledge that you get to be around continuously for some of the most brilliant minds that have ever and will ever and some of the most optimistic people i read a study the other day that said oh humans could you know be extinct by 20 uh 2050 and so i say to people look i know people who have done the impossible who've literally done things that were thought you know would have been magic i i I know people who've walked on the moon, who've dove to the deepest points in the ocean, who sent things beyond our solar system. That'd be Alan Stern. So when I, I look at future science exploration, this is what's going to save humanity. Really these is. are people. These are people who I don't even want to say blue sky because these are people going to space. They black sky things. Mm. So. Um, you know, we had this guy, uh, Ray Weiss, who just won the Nobel Prize in physics, and he was proving um, he was the first person to observe what Einstein had talked about gravitational bending uh, in space. So, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So now the, the people, because they're probably open doing things they don't do every day or people like me don't do every day. Do you guys serve snake in the Explorers Club, or what kind of food do you serve? Because you really got to go over the top. I, I had a salad there yesterday. You had a salad, like a boring as, salad with this vinaigrette. Yeah. Like, what did you have on it? Yeah, yeah. So you know, as you get older, the carbs don't react to you as well. <laughs> it's and, it's and not if, the same, huh? Yeah, and if the devil were to appear on Earth, it'd be white refined sugar. That would be um, it. I would expect you like hummus with a side of cockroach or like something like truly know, out it there. It depends. I mean, uh, in fact, I was cleaning up pizza boxes in there uh, yesterday on my way out. Um, <laughs> That's like next know, to my dumpster. Like this person likes a lot of pizza. Yeah, the planet's like a lot of pizza. Yeah, but you know the thing is, I'll tell you, I'm actually looking at a picture of me um, with these Batwa pygmies in Uganda. And uh, they're, I'm trying to remember what they were serving me for food, but I always find it an absolute honor when a group, an indigenous group someplace, uh, wants to share a meal to you. To me, there's no bigger act of inclusion or love than saying, I want to sit down and share a meal with you. And Beautifully I don't said. care whether it's, I don't care if it's a Berber in, in Morocco or somebody in Cyprus or, or a Batwa person in Uganda. To me, that is, it is, there are universal languages. People speak the same language of art, music, food, all those things, nature. Wow. I mean, the, the people that you're able to be around and the stories that you get to hear. I, I took a trip a couple of years back before I had kids uh, to Morocco. And a business partner and I, we drove 600 miles to uh, the border of Algeria and we, we took a ride yep. on a camel. And I didn't realize how scary camels can be or how you can quickly yeah, almost fall high, off one. Yeah, they're pretty high up. There. Yeah, they're yeah. pretty high up. 
Uh, so hanging out with, I called him Justin Bieber, took me a walk into the desert. Uh, and to look out over the desert to know that this is, this is history, that Caesars and kings have been through these sands. Have you well, ever had... sands too. Yeah, so Morocco's interesting. To me, it's like an onion that you keep peeling back and there's another layer to it. And I think that it's one of those countries that's relatively close to America. It's like, I don't know, like six and a half, seven hour flight. Yeah. And you go into these souks and markets that are so exotic. And then you go over the Atlas Mountains and, you know, it's yet another world. That was incredible, fact, in the, incredible journey there. In the, in the Atlas Mountains, it's incredible that uh, about five or six years ago, we went to this town of Tefrau, something or other. And we were the first non-Moroccan peoples to ever visit this town because they had never had roads up until, you know, we visited. And so I think all the thousands of years of the Romans and this, no one's ever been there. And that was a pretty incredible moment. In fact, I, I, I didn't believe it until I, I really asked a lot of people. And to they see said, it. Nope. Yeah. Wow. And that for me was this moment to see that part of the world, to know that most that, Americans. That's a great part of the world. They really is. No, that's a, I apologize. We have some interference in the background of a plane's landing or not on the studio. Uh, but that was a part of the world that I didn't feel unsafe that the people were very kind, they were very generous, they were very welcoming, um, and asking us to, to come in. And then seeing Atlas Studios, uh, wow, what a, what a remarkable feat that the Moroccans have been able to build. Um, so you've been everywhere. Uh, like, no, I haven't. Uh, I think you've been everywhere. So question, have you ever been no, at the Bermuda Triangle? <laughs> well, I've been too. I, I know you've been thinking about it. I have. It. <laughs> I, I have. I've been to Bermuda. I've been to Florida. All right. What, what, you know, so I've been in the triangle, yeah. You ever been, never, like, never did you ever really go looking for it, it, though? Like, did you, like, look, for, I don't know if it's, like, a tornado that's no. somewhere. Yeah, so that that's not real, huh? Well, I mean, there's a Bermuda Triangle because people have named it the Bermuda Triangle, but, um, you know. There's nothing uh, special not, to it. Yeah, it's not like yeah. I fly over it and suddenly, you know, the plane starts creaking and, <laughs> yeah. you know, you start hearing poltergeist kind of sounds. Well, I had to get that out there because there's a lot of people who would say, look, I've seen a TV show a few times and, it, and it's told us this Bermuda Triangle takes down planes right. and everything else. So, yeah, well, you wrote a book, Born to Explore, How to Be a Backyard Adventurer. Uh, anything that you would add to the book now and any plans for any other books? Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I'd love to add to the book. It's just uh, been a issue of time. But, you know, the whole sort of impetus behind the book was I felt that um, th that there's this whole uh, nature deficit disorder that people had become so uh, alien from the outdoor world. But I always say that you can see things through a different lens if you know how. And I'll give you an example. Um, I go through Grand Central Station in New York City often. 500,000 people go there. Every time I go there, I see a Jurassic Park of fossils. You look at the floor, there are fossils. You look at the walls, fossils everywhere. And so, you know, who would think? In fact, if, yeah. if the oyster bar uh, there, right on those steps, you'll see an ancient seafloor if you know how to look. If you go to Saks Fifth Avenue, I see coral fossils right in the S of Saks or even in Tiffany's in New York. So if you know how to look differently, when I was a kid, my father would stand on the lawn and I know this, and I, I know this so long, I don't even know how long I know it, but I always knew that a circle around the moon would mean rain within 24 hours. And it's just one of those things I know. And But yet, often I tell people that, and they go, wow, I didn't know that. And then they go, wow, I saw a, a ring around the moon, and 
I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to rain within 24 hours or snow. So there are so many things within your own environment. Look at a tree that's been cut down. Look at the tree rings. That's a history book right there. Man, you're right, right in our backyard. And most people take that for granted. I know, you know with, with my own family, we live, uh, the backyard is our woods and going to explore, seeing what the earth has provided and the life that lives on it. Uh, talking about climate change, um, have, you seen, have you seen an impact? Well, you know, I, Kilimanjaro is always one of those very emblematic mountains, you know, that you see the snows of Kilimanjaro receding. And it's not entirely due to climate change. Uh, part of it is deforestation and uh, because there's less moisture going there. But, yeah, of course, you know, I've been around long enough to see places that um, used to be tundra. Now they have trees popping up. So um, is it happening? Yeah, it's happening. Absolutely is happening. And and is it having an impact? You know, I, I think that you talk to people who live up in the Arctic and they start having like these crazy hot temperatures. Um, yeah, there's no doubt in my mind that it's happening and it is making an impact. Hmm. Well, currently you're a co-host of Weekends with Yankee, a PBS TV show that takes viewers on journeys throughout the New England region. What kind of experiences or destinations seem to resonate the most with the people you talk to? Well, I can tell you, I, I, I sort of uh, a little cheeky about this because I live in southern New England. So often when I go on trips, I go hmm, with a family like this, with my wife like this as a romantic getaway. Yeah. And so often when people travel, you sort of have a uh, a corridor of places that you will go to and revisit and you, you don't often um, go to new places because you go, well, we already like this beach or that beach. And so uh, even though I have uh, went to um, school in uh, New England, I went to Brown University and I live there now, there are so many places that on virtually every episode that I go, wow, I didn't know this place existed or I'd heard of places and I thought, um, oh, my gosh, why have I never come here before? I'll give you an example. Uh, we filmed in Shelburne, Vermont, on Lake Champlain. It was one of those days that you were looking across Lake Champlain, and you could see the Adirondack, Adirondack Mountains of New York and this beautiful um, fall foliage and um, these, these all these pastures with cows going by. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is just you know, stunning or in Providence, Rhode Island. Now they have this water fire, um, performances every weekend, or, uh, I mentioned that I, I got a lot of my training on Mount Washington. I still go there on a regular basis with friends just to have that big mountain feeling. So uh, I think that, um, for me, it's satisfying to know that, uh, I'm a new Englander and that I'm still discovering so many places with authenticity, wonderful, uh, people, the food scene in New England, oh, delicious. Maine is oh, fantastic. Yeah, surprisingly good. So it, it's been a real treat going there. Wow. Really and, and I always get surprised that more people in this country now we're heard around the world, but the more people in this country don't take that opportunity to go travel to that part, uh, that don't go see Vermont, that don't go see Connecticut, that don't go see Massachusetts, that, that it, this is part of our land. This is our own. Uh, and there's lots of stories to be told. Uh, so I, I got to ask you in the Explorers Club, does anybody ever talk about the TV show, uh, The Curse of Oak Island? Like, is this are they ever going to find something? <laughs> I, 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 to be honest, I've never heard anybody mention it. You haven't I'll heard listen, of it. I'll ask. I, I will ask. 
Yeah, my wife asks me, why do you keep watching? I'm like, I don't know. I'm hoping one day they'll find something. I, I just can't give up on them right now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to be improbable that something was, but you, you guess you, you just never know, uh, which leads me to my next, Atlantis. Uh, there's lots of, uh, lots of debate on this topic. Uh, what do the explorers talk about? Are you, are you talking about the place in Bahamas where you swim with the dolphins? Oh, well, I guess you could have that place. Well, it seems to be pretty nice. I'm talking about an ancient place that we've yet to find, or maybe the explorers. I don't know if you guys are like the Freemasons, hiding some secrets. Uh, but Atlantis, not the Bahamas. Is Atlantis, is it a myth? What do you think? Well, I'm going to just start this off by the paradigms of what I thought were true when I was a kid have changed. When I was a young boy, I thought there were nine planets that life existed from above freezing to below boiling. And I know that's no longer the case. Um, I think that um, exploration has become more a less a cult of personality, more a cult of data. And so, you know, depends what your um, your vision of Atlantis is. Could it be a place that um, you know, had a huge earthquake and area slid into the sea, possibly, um, you know, it just depends what your, your definition is. I think it's sort of bantied around for a lot of places. Yeah. Well, a lot of us have to live vicariously through people like you, people that are true explorers. And so when you see a lot of the stuff on TV that happens to indoctrinate and make people believe that, that things exist that may not exist, it starts to create questions, um, around when you travel, we like to ask kind of the question to people of, well, what's on your playlist? I mean, you're on long flights, you're on long boat rides, you're, you're on trains. Do you listen to music? Do you read books? What inspires you? How do you find your fuel to keep going? Well, you know, now airlines have movies. So my last flight, I watched Crazy Rich Asians twice. I thought it was so funny. <laughs> Got into um, twice. Yeah, you know, on that. So, you know, it depends if um, I have internet on a flight, I'm sending emails and communicating with different people over, you know, different things. Um, I, I'm not enjoying the flying aspect of travel so much anymore because uh, the airports that I fly out of uh, JFK, Newark and LaGuardia are, are not what I would consider really great airports to fly it's a pain to get there and park and all that other yeah, stuff very challenging you've been to baltimore um, washington international i bet too it's gonna be challenging uh, I, there too I, you know i i haven't been there in a while so you know i don't know but so um and when i am filming often i have to be filming the next day and i don't often fly uh business class or certainly not first so you know i'm just i don't, I don't drink on flights uh, often I bring my, my own food. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, what, what do you bring? Yeah. Like, what is your, your food list? What will you bring? You bring, is this like real food salads or do you throw I, on a little you know, bit I go of, to, those... I go to, well, I go to Trader Joe's. I always get those packets of sort of dried almonds. Cause I like those. I'm writing notes down. Like Explore note number they're, one they're, to Dustin. Almonds. Yeah. So, um, you know, also I, I've, I've sort of, um, figured out packing and, uh, certain things that, will uh you know travel well you know for example uh, a lot of people don't realize that wool even very thin uh merino wool is antimicrobial and it will dry on you it doesn't like cotton shirts get once they get wet sort of you know aren't so great um you know i even try to uh you know how do i sleep you know to be honest i take sleeping pills off yeah do you have one of those and, neck uh, pillows are you that guy yeah, I, I do. And I do too. I need the one that kind of snaps okay. in the front. I was making sure I wasn't the only only man out there yeah. that likes these things. 
Yeah. And it's, uh, I'm six foot one. So, uh, you know, yes, I have the same problem. My arm falls asleep and you sort of shake it out. Yeah. And the needle's gone. Yeah. It's, it's the same that I have to deal with. Uh, do you but think my, my favorite thing is electric toothbrush? I, electric, I electric toothbrush. Do you have like the, the converter? So when you travel around, no problem. No, but you know, I, I've had the same brawn, uh, electric toothbrush probably for 20 something years. Man, you got to get them and to sponsor like, you. You'd be a heck of a, a spokesperson. The bronze, uh, this I, thing I has been know, everywhere, I, huh? It, it has. I honest to goodness, the one thing, like if I'm on the North pole or on the side of Everest or, you know, you're really tired to me, there's something really nice about having a mouth that feels nice and clean and fresh. And so I, I, you know, these things don't on one charge, they seem to last a couple of weeks at least. So, um, I, I just, you know, no matter how tired, I just sort of stick it in my mouth, hit the on button, and it goes, and, and it makes it feel clean. It makes it feel clean. So I think of you like a MacGyver type. Do you bring floss with you for not just your teeth? Like we use it for like multi-purpose, like scotch tape? Well, you know, duct tape's probably better than that. And the way you sort of remember to bring duct tape is you wrap it around things like hiking poles or a water bottle so you don't forget the roll. But... um you know, I, I've, I've actually started using these uh, little flossing. Uh, I don't know what they're called. They're they're not um, floss because I find like my hands aren't always clean and. They look like a musical clean. instrument, like that kind. Uh, it, no, it, it's sort of like this uh, long toothpick with uh, bristly things on it. What are those called? Hmm, long toothpick with bristly things on it. I'm, I'm looking around. I'm a little lost. You explorers go over my head a few times. Um, no, no, this is, yeah. this is a CVS purchase. Are you sure this isn't like a cactus that you bring with you? Like you, you are the spot now where like well, you, you don't I feel it anymore. Have, you know, so there is actually in East Africa, in South Africa plant, they call the toothbrush plant in which they break off a branch and you sort of, um, uh, roll it a little and it, it gives you, uh, sort of a toothbrush type thing. And you and often you'll see people in Africa. Oh, I thought I had teeth. a billion dollar idea right there. You just stole it from me. <laughs> is it called like so, a gum soft pick original new and improve stronger pick so, the one i use yeah i'm looking at a package uh, one of my partners yeah, here is on the table at me well see he he knows what it is yeah they uh, do they're looking at me saying dust you don't floss enough everybody uses these yeah that's right yeah you know sunscreen and floss <laughs> so you wear sunscreen oh, it's good so every explorer must bring sunscreen in their overnight bag yeah but i've become very disenchanted with sunscreen to be honest because uh I think you're better off creating shade environments because sunscreens in and itself may absorb UVA and UVB, but then your skin absorbs the UVA and UVB with the material. And often uh, the stuff that's in sunscreen isn't good. Zinc oxide, if you don't mind the look, yeah, uh, well, is what, far, far superior. And the picture that uh, I've seen of you that's on the post, your skin looks really nice. You don't look like the typical explorer. So good, good job. Keep it up. Yeah, uh, thank you. That that's probably more jeans. Oh, it's jeans. I'll, I don't know if you were to say it's been photoshopped. My relatives, my 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 southern Italian um, roots. My grandfather's from Corleone, Sicily. And oh, really? Yes, they yeah they fare well in the in the sun. Yeah, all right. So Corleone, Sicily. That's pretty wild. So your passport or other important documents. You ever misplaced or lost them? Yes, you have. Um, what? So, where? When, when did this go down? You know, uh, the last thing I lost was my phone going through um, the, the scanner. I don't know how it dropped out or fell off, but I happened and I rarely have a spare phone with me. 
And I was thinking, where the hell is his phone? And I ended up going <laughs> back to the lost, the lost stuff department of JFK a week and a half later. That's like the Explorers and, and, Club. I bet you find some oh interesting God, finds there. How they how they found my phone is unbelievable. But uh, passport I once had stolen in Ecuador, and I remember it was right after nine eleven where people were kind of skittish, and I knew it was going to be one of those. Um, it was during the weekend, so I knew I couldn't get a replacement, and I wanted to go. So I asked the airport if they'd call the Miami station to say that you have somebody coming in without a passport. And I remember it had been um, when Jordan came out of retirement and scored like 52 points to the Knicks. So I figured, let me talk to the guy, tell him, hey, you know, Michael Jordan, just blah, 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 blah. And I think the, the guy I was up. speaking to him was, was, was speaking, said, this guy's American trust me <laughs> <laughs> and so they, they put me on the plane without a passport and they put you on well that's good you, you made it through okay so some time ago you were featured in a story in wine spectator magazine you've evidently okay. brought bottles of wine with you on expeditions around the globe um right are there any rituals involved i like to think of one for me one for my mate type moments uh, uh, oh well that you know the at that time the explorers cup had a wine sponsor and it was just sort of uh not a joke but a little bit of a competition between this other person and myself who would bring wine to more exotic locations. Yeah. And you, so, you want to share the person's name? We can call them out and see who won the game. Yeah. Her, her name was Kristen Larson and she um, was an Antarctic explorer. She had been based there for some winters. And so I remember that year and it was an unusually heavy travel schedule for me that I brought wine on Kilimanjaro. And then I brought, I, I had, um, been on that Everest trip and then I cross country skied to the North pole. And so within like a two month period. And so, uh, I remember on the North pole cause it never got above minus, I don't know, 30 that one of the bottles burst oh, and, man. and the other one I had to sort of put over, um, a fire to sort of a thought. So I don't think that's the proper way to have wine. And, no. and, I, and I might be that's actually the first person in a wine spectator interview to use the word crappy wine. <laughs> you threw uh, that out there. They're not going to sell any more of that one. Uh, yeah. So I, 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 I'm not a, a real wine connoisseur. And uh, I have so many friends who would love to be on that back inside interview cover about wine. Of and course here they you would. have a guy yeah. who's talking about two buck Chuck um, and <laughs> And so, yeah, that was a bit of, a bit of an odd interview for me, but it, it, you know, it was fun. It was fun being on Wine Spectator. Yeah, that that's that's quite an achievement. Being that here's an explorer, been on Wine Spectator. So, is this red white wine? Like, what is on your list, and what what have you brought with you? So, I I personally, although I like uh, red wine, I don't sleep so well with red wine afterwards. Um, typically drink white wine. Uh, I like rosés if they're good. Um, so yeah, those are, I'm not a heavy drinker, um, in general, especially yeah, when I travel, you know, I just, um, because of uh, jet lag and, and I have to perform the next day and I never drink when I'm, um, on official duty with the Explorers Club, just because, you know, it's just part of my personal discipline of not wanting to, uh, seem that, um, hanging out, drinking during events. Yeah, that's not, I always say there's always that one person's always has a glass of something or a beer in their hand that you always go, I think that person has a drinking problem. Every single social well, media yeah, thing I've ever seen them in. Yeah, and, and so I think that, um, 
you know, because I, I'm in a uh, position that I respect and honor and not that explorers have anything against drinking. I just feel like we live in a world where you just have to be uh, a lot more buttoned up in your personal life and, and how you conduct yourself. You can never walk it back once it's out there. So are yeah, you, are you yeah. still researching grapevines that trace back to cuttings, which your great grandparents, I believe, brought to this country from Sicily? Well, yes. Um, so my great grandparents actually did bring uh, grapes and they, they moved to the Bronx, New York. And one of the most incredible things, they used to have this great big arbor in their backyard growing out of concrete. And uh, they used to make their own wine. Their own wine. And yeah. so while you are passionate about wine, I also have heard that apparently you design wine labels for your friends. Are you still doing uh, that? Well, you know, I was. <laughs> You're uh, like, how did happy. we find that? I go, well, we did a lot of research. And by the way, yeah, someone does really, have your you passport. Really we, we found you in another country. Okay, so um, the story behind that is when I was in college, first of all, if you had a great bottle of wine, you would save the bottle and put cheaper wine in it just to sort of say, hey, <laughs> of course you bottle of wine. Yeah, nice yeah, job. So um, in the early days of Photoshop, I um, like to make creative gifts, and I'd always make uh, like Chateau Dustin, and you know, you'd write a little label Thank on it. Thank you there. very much for naming it after yeah, me. Well, well played. Just just a hint of nuts. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had a little crazy to it. Yeah, yeah very yeah. uneducated taste, almost How illiterate. dare you? Yeah, I'm borderline, yeah. okay? <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually, every once in a while, I go to a relative, and, and, and the, the, the fun part was, was the wine in general is not expensive wine, but people just love the idea that their name was on a bottle of it's wine. It's a great idea. And didn't open it. Yeah. You've done everything, and apparently you were. Yeah, I can tell you that I'm gonna. Where I'm going right now, you were in a love scene with Brooke Shields in the 1986 film Endless Love. Does anybody ever remind uh, you, except for me, about that? Yes, her. Um, Because I I didn't, you know, I, I was in college when I did that film. It was actually 1981, I believe. And when you do a love scene, no one ever tells you what to do. At least they didn't tell me. The, the director, Franco Zeffirelli. And so um, I was uh, 21 years old. And uh, first there was a scene with uh, her standing naked uh, double. Hmm. And you're 21 years old and someone tells you to, you know, sort of do this and that with this person. You're like, you're kidding, right? Yeah, I'm allowed to. And you're so, not going to call the police. Like, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and so then they move in for the close up of the kissing scene. And, um, Again, no one told me what to do, and I think I was a little uh, too realistic in my kiss. Hmm. And um, and yeah, I, I've run into her a couple times since, and she goes, "Oh yeah, you're the guy who, uh, <laughs> you know." Um, <laughs> she, had, she had a towel off afterwards, huh? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> um, yeah, that, that was uh, that was it, it, that was one of those moments that, again, I was in college, and you're like, "Oh my god, I, I, I wish someone w- were actually seeing this." Because when I get back to my fraternity, no one's actually going to believe this happened. They are not going to believe that happened. Speaking of awards, you've received an Emmy Award, a Genesis Award, an Associated Press Foley Award, a Golden Halo Award, and the 2012 Walter Cronkite Award for your contributions to journalism and exploration. Where do you keep all these awards? Is this in a museum? Is this a safe? 
Where do you keep See, all Dustin, this? Dustin, man, I thought you would have done better research. I guess I did. Oh. I got a team of people that let me down. How dare we, you, Gerald? We, we had 14 Emmy nominations. My God, people. How dare wins. you, Gerald? You really and are. Gerald, oh, we have 37 um, tellies. And, tellies yeah, and so. everything else. You got 50 of this and 30 of that. And you're the collector. And gosh, so all yeah, this so, stuff. Is there a warehouse big enough for all of it? Uh well, you know, I actually do have a shed uh, outside my house just because I got a lot of stuff. Yeah. And my wife doesn't like it in the house. But, yeah, you too, uh, huh? That's like me. She calls it like so a hoarder. I put, yeah, so I put the Emmy. I, I put it instead of like a Mercedes symbol on the front of my car. I put that on there. <laughs> you did not, you diva. That's how you show up at the Explorers Club. <laughs> yeah, I, I have it on a chain, you know, a chain <laughs> that hangs from my neck just to be subtle. Gosh, man, you really live the life. Tell me about your involvement with the Cheetah Conservation Fund. So in uh, Namibia is an incredible uh, scientist named Dr. Lori Marker. Your memory is spectacular. I don't know what you're doing to keep it up, Namibia. (laughs) So So, um, we were filming Born to Explore there. And I've visited a lot of non-for-profits in my time. And so, you know, you see good ones, bad ones, some that exist for the sake of existing. And I thought, this is an incredible woman. It was it was sincerely some of the best science and advocacy of cheetahs I'd ever seen. And so we ended up becoming friends. And um, she asked me to be on our board of directors. And I, I have a, a, a really a sincere uh, good friendship with this woman who I think is, you know, she is the Jane Goodall of cheetahs. And so uh, I'm very proud to be part of that organization. Boy, as a dad, as I am also a dad, we're both preparing our kids for the day that we're no longer here, that we can guide them, we can train them, we can instruct them. We can give them the best of us. We can help them learn from the worst of us. What do you want to impart most to to your children and to, to the parents around the world? What advice can you give them as they look back over their life and can give their kids advice? You know, I think parents, uh, if you're going through to the first time, like I am, you're sort of half making it up as you go along. And, you know, I think that if you're a good couple, you you want your kids to uh, move forward in a positive way. But I think that um, at least the observation where I live in Connecticut is that there are too many what we call snowplow parents that they try to remove all obstacles for their kids. And so I don't know if that's the best way to train kids. I think, um, and I'll give credit to my wife on this, um, creativity within our household uh, has a high place. And that I'd like to think that my kids are creative and engaged in kind of stuff that interests them and are, are jazzed about it. And we have a big mess in several of our rooms because my daughter's always with her hot glue gun making something. And That sounds like um, a beautiful home. Well, I, I just feel like, and and at dinner, my kids, my wife and I are ho- horrible parents because they don't seem to ever sit, you know. And someone's always playing <laughs> yeah. a song and dancing, or that's like my, my house. daughter does, ba- yeah, ballet. Me too. So, Same thing. I, I understand yeah. what that's like. There's always a performance. So I think that they uh, would would have learned from visiting villages around the world that happiness really is defined more by community, and that um, I, I know where I live that people don't necessarily just drop by your house or kids knock at the door. And I think that we're as a culture missing out on a lot because we sort of lock ourselves in our house. Whereas if you're in an African village, you may be poor, but next door is your grandparents and just down from there is your cousin. And 
and and you have that safety net of a community. So that's a th- the thing that I think uh, that we miss most here in America. And if I, I could impart on my kids, I wish I could do a little better job in that respect. That is great counsel and a lot of wisdom. And and final question we have for you today: Who's the toughest person you've ever known? Uh, I would say, boy, some of these American astronauts, these early guys, these are tough guys. I mean, you know, they they would be sitting on. Um, on these rockets that they didn't even know were going to blow up. I met once uh, Valentina Tereskova. She was a woman who was the first uh, woman in space in the 1960s. And I think these early cosmonauts, man, they were tough. These were, and they, they didn't even splash down. They bounced on land and they would sort of eject in there. So uh, I, I would almost say that Valentina Tereskova from the old Soviet Union was the toughest person I ever met. Wow. So Valentina, she was it. And how about uh, male uh, in the United States, let's say within the astronaut community in your in your circle, uh, one of your friends? Uh, So. I think that. uh, You know, the toughest people I've met are not necessarily famous. These are people who've sort of endured a lot of personal hardships and have been able to overcome it. So I think that um, there's a few people I've met in Africa. I won't even mention their name because you won't have known them, but they've just overcome so much on a regular basis and been successful that I can't even imagine what it is uh, to overcome that. So that is, that is the, that is an answer that I would tell you from my own heart. That is the way I see the world too, that there are people that never got that name. They didn't get the fame. Yeah. And yet they didn't give up and they fought harder. Right. And they were the first one in and they were the last one to leave. Um, yeah. Th- that was that was an amazing send off. Well, any final words you have uh, for our listeners around the world, Richard? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a big world out there. Enjoy it. Um, optimism will get you through a lot of life. And, you know, like in Churchill, never, ever, ever give up because uh, you, as you said in the earlier part when you were intro- uh, doing the introduction, you are the author of your own life. No one else is. Well said. All right. Well, life's tough, but Richard Weiss is tougher. Thanks for coming on the show, Richard. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dustin. It's been a pleasure. You already know life is tough, and running your own business is tougher. You need a financial planner who's tougher. Carl Grund is a financial planner who helps small business owners navigate the market and grow their business through financial strategies. Give Carl a call at 703-287-7128. That's 703-287-7128. Or send an email to cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. That's cgrund at sfpfinancial.com. To learn how Carl can help you get tough on business. Securities and advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates, Inc., member FINRA, SIPC. So that wraps up our show for today. Thanks again to Richard Weiss for making this another outstanding episode of our Life's Tough podcast. And thanks to you, our amazing audience, for making the Life's Tough podcast one of the most relevant and fastest growing shows around. Also, special thanks to my dear friend, Gerald Levin, Life's Tough chief writer and my Sherpa, and to Alston Carlisle Studios in Baltimore, Maryland. The stories we all hear are as varied as the people who tell them. 
And each time I hear someone's personal account, I do not frame it as something that was more horrible than my own story or something that was not as bad as what I went through. Richard has heard stories from people around the world, stories that make you cry and stories that make you laugh. And for me, it's impossible to discount the impact of any one singular experience. To the person who lived it, that story can be just as devastating as any other. I ask you to use your story, no matter what you're going through, to give others hope. It's quite liberating to move beyond your past. Don't keep your story to yourself and allow it to eat away at you. Don't become a volunteer victim. Instead, consider how your experience can benefit somebody else. Your story may be just what it takes to help someone in your circle or in our community to get through a tipping point moment, an instance when that person either chooses to continue to be a victim or when that person finds the strength to turn transcend a particular situation. Please subscribe to our show. Visit lifestuff.com and be sure to join us every week, same time, same place, for a stimulating hour of heartfelt discussion. Remember, everyone has a story and every story has a purpose. Life's tough. You could be tougher. So for the entire Life's Tough team, this is Dustin Planelt signing off. Remember, life's tough. You can be tougher. Take care, everyone. <laughs>